Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here again with Karen Schrag. Karen, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm very good. I thought about you earlier today. And even though I want to ask you about tomatoes, I don't know if you know, there's this movie, One Eight Billion Angel, Eight Billion Angels, I think, coming out. Yeah. I'm listening to it and I'm just watching the, the preview and it's, I think it's being released on Earth Day. So for people who don't know, we're recording this now, August 19th, April 18th. So just before Earth Day. The 20th, it's being released actually tomorrow. Okay. So, yeah. well, for all the listeners, it's in the past now. Correct. Okay. There and you go. Bill Ryerson has the most recognizable voice I could imagine. I'm like, that's Bill uh, as a voiceover. And I thought, I wonder if Karen's in it because I was thinking about you. I'm not, but I do know Terry, the producer, very well. Uh-huh. I met I met him when it was pretty much all produced, and he's been working very hard on the editing, and he's working very hard on the promotion of it. But I'm actually on the board of Earth or Overshoot, uh-huh. so very well aware. I met Terry several years ago in Washington D.C. at a, a joint overpopulation meeting we we're at, and uh, very excited because I haven't seen the film either. But I I think about these films that come out, and we all owe each other an audience and a voice mm-hmm. and you have to realize no matter what people put out there whether it's a newsletter or a, or an op-ed or a film as long as it's heartfelt and they're trying to do the right thing you know sometimes we're the worst audience because we're like well, how come they didn't bring up this and how come they didn't bring up that and i'm just mm-hmm. going you know what let's just be an audience and realize how much effort went into this well i think also it's it's putting it into the mainstream conversation right Right. And I, but I mean, I think that when you, when you're steeped in an issue, I don't care what it is, selling shoes, whatever it is, you just, you just know so much. Sometimes you know too much. And that's why I always say, you know, I'm not the best audience for some of these things that come out because to a lot of people, this is a brand new topic. Yeah. When I said put it into, it's put it back into conversation because yes. it, it was a couple decades ago. Yeah. And then, one of the big parts of my book is to talk about, I picked two out of many civilizations that have lived stably. So one of them is Hawaii. After the Polynesians colonized it, they stopped trading and the Hawaiians were on their own for centuries until Captain Cook stumbled on them. And in that time, the, it was estimated the population was about 300,000 and it stayed that way. That's not by accident. They must have talked about, well, if you have extra babies, then they can't. So humans have done this. Right. I think one of the things I learned that was very interesting is, is you're right. They didn't not, but the, their stories supported sustainability. For example, one of the tribes, and I forget which one it was, had a story that if you had a multiple birth. Like twins? Like twins. Uh-huh. You would keep, keep one and put one out in the woods. And you did that because the story was that, you know, one, one was, was an evil spirit. You don't need it. You don't want the evil spirit. So it was very easy for people to say, Oh, that one's got the evil spirit, put it out in the woods, let wolves get it or something, and then raise one. But what's the, what's the overall effect of that is to keep a population stabilized through a story that keeps it stabilized. Now we, we look at on that story in absolute horror Mm -hmm. because you know, we do fertility drugs and multiple births are celebrated with television shows. But I think one of the ways that that a, a culture keeps their population in line with their resources is, number one, to be very closely connected to the land so you can see you're about to run out of space mm-hmm. and you can see it. 
because, you know, I, I just got back from the store and it's quite evident that there's plenty, right? There's just plenty. It's just, it's just got to have enough money, but the shelves are now full again after the COVID run on stores and so on. But I think that that's part of it is that the, the story supported a sustainable way, even though to our ears, some of the stories sound just horrific. You know, at certain times, people had to up their population. So they had polygamy, which does it very quickly. And the polygamy says, you know, yeah, a man can have 10 wives. That's great and should. Well, now you've got your population going up and, and less less failure for the whole culture to go down. So I just think that it's the function of story that we have to look at. And I think that's when you think of the earth as a limitless place, your stories match that limitlessness. But even though the earth's going, <coughs> I can't handle you anymore, we go, no, no, no. But we just have to rethink this you know, at a lower level. Yeah, story. I'm going to add to stories, role models and other beliefs, symbols. And people, they're so quick to jump on technology, innovation. These things serve our culture. And if our culture is one of growth, then it will simply amplify the beliefs. And yes, it, it's pretty simple once you get it. The, our effect on the environment is the outward manifestation of our beliefs, our stories, our images, our culture. And if we don't change the culture, if I snap my fingers and magically, I can magically return all the pollution back to pre-industrial levels, but we kept our culture, we kept our beliefs and our stories and our images and our role models, we'd be right back. Right. And it's I'm watching a, a series on HBO right now. It's called the Exterminate the Brutes. Have you heard of it? Mm-mm. Exterminate the Brutes is about going way back to like the year 800 and talking about extermination of people and how that's been part of culture for ever. I mean, for as long, you know, human civilization, it different, you know, different people fill in the blanks, you know, it could be the Jews of Europe, it could be the uh, native peoples of the Americas, but extermination as a goal, I've only watched one part of the series, but I also think when you talk about story, if extermination is part of your story, the expansion of that extermination just goes to the planet itself. And uh, maybe I'm making too much of a leap here, but I'm, I'm listening to this with great interest because the, what we're going through here in Minneapolis with the Derek Chauvin trial mm-hmm. and with, uh, we, with Dante Wright and, and all these horrific things, I think, I think it just fits that extermination story. You're not worthy of uh, life and therefore I'm going to treat you differently is the extermination story. You're not worthy of life if you're the people of the buffalo, if you're the, you know, if, if we say you can have this land and oops, we need your timber. And now we, there was really a policy, the, it's called The Night Watchman, is a book by our local, the wonderful award-winning artist named Louise Erdick. Her grandfather was with an eighth grade education, was, uh, went before Congress to fight for his people's extermination. They literally, there was a bill before Congress to get rid of the turtle band of the Ojibwa here in Minnesota. And the purpose of the extermination was to get the land because this is post-World War II and they wanted the timber to build houses for the baby boom that was happening. And so if you have that as your story, it just makes sense. Like people can be exterminated for the purpose of growth of the, of the dominant people. So I think it's just really important to understand how embedded these stories have been for such a long time. 
All right, let me make sure that I get this because I think mm-hmm. people are ready to hear, oh, listen to this woman who wants to lower the population. She's talking about extermination. As a negative thing. See, that's what I want to make sure because yeah. I think most, most people who say that population is not an issue yeah. are going to say, I have no interest in exterminating. Uh, what are you, you're talking about it. I don't want to do, I don't want to listen to you. Okay. But I think what you were saying is that mainstream culture that is driving growth has always had extermination as part of its story. That's right. And, and if you're an overpopulation activist like I am, it's an anti-extermination philosophy and story because overpopulation on its own without interference is an extermination story. That sounds like a hard sell. I think most people are going to say, I'm not exterminating. I'm the opposite of exterminating. I believe in life. I, I believe there should be more life. But that it's an uninformed story. And the uninformed part of it is that when you're overpopulated by five and a half billion in the last hundred years, that's a force of extermination, extermination of wildlife and clean water. And in a modern world, all of the pollution is exacerbated by how many people are doing a growth-based story. I think that's going to be a hard sell. I, I don't think... Oh, it's been a hard sell. I don't it's think it's going to work at all. Sell. I mean, if I'm someone who thinks a rising tide lifts all boats, we should keep growing, uh, mm-hmm. GDP growth is the best way to, to bring about equality and, and bring jobs. And, mm-hmm. then, and you say, yeah, but you're actually pushing extermination. I'd say, no, you don't understand me. That's my gut. Yeah. Well, what I'm saying is that if you look at Thailand and what happened to their GDP, when they got a very robust family planning program involved and and reduced their population over time by about 9 million people, their GDP went up. And so what you're right, what people think is the good outcome of their story is not supported by evidence or science or ecology. It is supported by a belief that social justice will prevail. And it can't in a world of scarcity, which is driven by too many people demanding from a limited planet. Yeah, I don't think that I would use that tactic to tell people, you know, you're really exterminating. But if it, unless you find it works for you, and then in which case I like to... But no, what I'm, what I'm saying is that, is that the growth-based annihilation of the biosphere going on right now is connected to what this, and I'll admit I haven't watched those whole series hasn't, you know, been, but I think it's a continuation of this devil may care, get out of my way. I'm going to do this sort of attitude. I'm going to do this because I have a right to do this. And and that's what I'm trying to connect those dots for myself. Okay. So you're not, you're just exploring. I'm exploring you know, you've you got to ask yourself, why? Why are we so um, good at pushing down people who are already marginalized? Why are we so good at not learning from our experiences? What narrative is that feeding? And I'm just trying to paint this overall narrative of saying that we're very good at continuing on the same course that we've always continued on and without much evidence that it's working, but it's what we know. And that's what I'm trying to connect those dots. Okay. Because I was looking at it, does it give me something that I can help lead people with? But I don't see it in there. No, I, I, think, I think the first thing you have to do is realize that you're part of a story. 
before you can even hope to say, go this way or go that way. A lot of people don't, they think they're part of what they would call reality. And when you tell them, no, you're part of a story that says, look at a lawn. The lawn is a story. It's just a manifestation of a story that says that's beautiful and weeds are ugly. And it's what you know, and therefore you think it's what should continue on. And what I'm saying is that much of what we need to do is to examine what we're living and how we're living before you can. I think people will come to. Are you saying that to me or to. No, no. If there's someone who's got a story that is driving growth, they think that, uh, you know, if we're not growing, then. GDP falls, people don't have jobs, infrastructure crumbles, hospitals. And I don't say, if I say to them, ah, that's your story, but you have to change your story. I have to lead them to, an. I find what works is having a different story. Yes. Not to tell them intellectually, you should change that story, unless they're someone who has actively changed the story before and is looking for a new story. I'm mostly talking about examination of story rather than telling them anything. Okay. Yeah. For me, it's really what, what stories can I... I'm looking to lead, not simply to examine. I guess I have come to the conclusion over my experience that I'll have an empty room if I try to lead people who believe that where they are is just fine. Does that make any sense? Yeah, that's and and my my challenge is how do I engage them? Right. And and not just how, but my challenge is to keep trying. If it fails, try a different way. If it fails, try a different way. If it works, amplify and Mm -hmm. and look at that. Totally fine. Again, I, I think we owe each other this audience of saying, let's keep keep doing what what we believe is the way forward. Because I certainly don't believe I. I think the worst thing to do is believe you have all the answers. I certainly don't. But what what's been my experience is that, like, I was thinking of having a, a t shirt made that says, "So how's the wildlife doing?" Just ask that question. Well, what do you mean wildlife? Well, how are the bees doing? How are the how are the bobcats doing? How are, they, how are they doing? And and the next question is, okay, well, they're not, not doing so well. well and, and the next question is, and, and does it matter? And how does it matter? And then when people realize, you know, kind of look at, well, gee, eight out of 10 things in the grocery store are pollinated by bees and the bees are going down. And okay, so there's there's something amiss. And, and you know, there's so many people in my life who who I don't think see that things are amiss except for, you know, we're just this close to figuring it out technologically or some other scientific discovery is going to come about. So that, that's just my approach. And I don't think your approach is, is anything but worthy of, of what you're putting into it. Yeah, my starting point is what's in their hearts and their minds. So I have to think about freedom. I have to think about liberty. I have to think about fun and engage on those. Mm-hmm. Very, then, very good. Because if I tell them, what do you think? If I say to a, a political conservative, mm-hmm. how's the wildlife? Like, I don't think they have any interest in listening. I think they would expect a lecture. If I talk to someone at 350.org about that, that might be a different story. Mm-hmm. If I talk to, so I, I want to come up with stories that are relevant to, that are in their hearts. Mm-hmm. Or really start with dialogue. Well, actually, if I talk about like, my visit to West Point and working with, with soldiers, working with generals, mm-hmm. working with other conservatives, working with learning from William Wilberforce. That's where I look for stories with them because I want to engage people that I disagree with. And I have to be open to, I might be the one who's wrong. Absolutely. No, no, I think that's, 
That's so true. And I think right now the cancellation is coming from people who used to be very much in, in for the, the you know freedom of speech, the First Amendment. They really and now it's like there was just a situation where a friend of mine was canceled before she even talked because they said, Oh, I think you're racist because you're gonna talk about overpopulation. And it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, you know, so yeah, not only I think it's in some ways easier to talk to people who we might disagree fundamentally on so many other issues than it is for people that that used to be what we thought of as more of more of allies. So it's it's a very strange world world we're living in right now. Then I I have not worked as hard to get stories for people who would say, Oh, you're talking about overpopulation, that's racist. Mm-hmm. That because I have been playing around, you know, when I read Ibram Kendi's book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. As I read it, one of the things he does is he splits people. You're either racist or anti-racist. You know, he says, I've, I see a light switch. There's on, there's off. I don't see any in the middle. Although come to think of it with LEDs, I mean, there's a lot of faders. They are. But I'm interested in talking to him and saying, okay, let's take this racist, anti-racist. How about polluter, anti-polluter? Are you mm-hmm. a polluter or are you an anti-polluter? And if that, example. It, it's, his, it's his framework applied right. to a different place. and. Right. If that were to catch on, then everyone who's anti-racist, I think might, especially if he bought into it, if he felt like, oh, you're right. And I believe that there's a pretty good chance of that happening. And if he said, oh, you're right, I got to be an anti-polluter. Suddenly that set of values in that community would, would work. I think that could really take over, not take over, uh, take up like wildfire. Mm-hmm. I just be careful when I say like wildfire, because... <laughs> In an environmental sense, I mean, are, there are wildfires that are natural that, you know, there are wildfires before there are humans. All right. We could talk about this stuff and I would love to, and I, and I hope we keep doing it. But now I want to hear you had, since last we spoke, can you remind me what you did? But before that, what led you to take on a commitment? Well, the, what led me to take on a commitment is that, is that when you're a gardener and you, or I should not you, just talk about me, when I was working full time and wanted to garden, Starting things from seed was time-consuming, and I actually don't have that much room in my house. I've tried it before. But then I thought, well, my dad loves projects, and wouldn't it be fun to you know, start from the beginning and do the let's plant tomato plants, which he loves. We both uh, love tomato plants, and, and have him plant the seeds and then set up a whole system in his house where we could grow them. And and so the motivation was kind of twofold was let's instead of going and buying your plants and not sure how they're what, you know, are they heirloom seeds? Are they organically raised and so on? And, and to be able to start from scratch, which is also much more fulfilling because I have done it in the past, but not, not, you know, a big project like we took on mm-hmm. together about well, five weeks ago now. So it was motivation of, of, getting more in touch with the real process of growing something. It doesn't start with a plant. It starts with a seed and it starts with soil and it starts with compost. It starts with, you know, nurturing the seed, you know, the the whole process. And several times my dad said, as he looked at the young plants, that's all from that tiny seed I planted. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, I said, they're so tiny. They're so amazing. And they're so, to me, they're, they're just the, the little, you know, miracles of of life i i've always been uh in love with plants and the way they grow and how they reproduce i've been you know teaching that for so many years and at the nature center that i ran 
And so my motivation was to just make those two things happen, give him a project and and get back to the more, the roots, no pun intended, of, of getting uh, plants. So it's a bit of family and a bit of nature returning to roots. Yeah. And then, and, and I, I tried to examine it from the standpoint of, can you do it without a lot of, you know, plastic is very difficult. I mean, the trays that the things come in are made out of plastic. And now here was, a, here was an interesting thing. The, oh, wait, I'm, I'm going to interrupt. Sorry. Cause yeah. we're, now you're, you're saying how it went, but now yeah. what was, what did you commit to? Oh, I committed to seeing if I could from um, just nothing, just grow my own with my dad and I grow our own tomato and pepper plants. Okay. So I wanted to get that there. And then yeah. can you go back to, okay, so avoiding plastic. It was really hard. But anyway, the, the basic thing was that heirloom seeds that came from Seeds of Change, if you're familiar with that company, Seeds of Change make, you know, it's very, we're in plastic reusable packages. Uh-huh. And then the ones that weren't organic were in paper containers that were a little bit more recyclable. So it was resealable, but at the end of the day, it was plastic and that had the most organic heirloom stuff in it. So I thought of that as a real interesting observation of your options nowadays. Yeah. You know, do I get the more organic seeds in the plastic thing or do I get the one that aren't as organic in the paper one? I mean, it's, uh, you know. So this- where'd you go? Which way did you go? Well, I ended up doing the paper ones that, that were organic, but weren't necessarily heirloom. And then I made sure that the substrate was, was you know, all compost and everything. And, and then you realize some people are very strict vegans. I've been a vegetarian for, I don't know, 30 years. But then I realized that almost every tomato uh, fertilizer is made out of bone meal, which is ground up animal bones. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder how many people take it to the level of, oh, no, I'm just going to use earthworms as my fertilizer. So I, it, all these things came up. They just surfaced as I examine the process. Plus, you have to put a heater underneath it, which of course takes fossil fuel. And then you have to put a, I used an LED light, but an, a light on top of it, and you have to water it every day. So it's very intensely resource using to grow these little seedlings. And I'm sure it's done commercially that way as well, that you use heat, you use light, you use water. Yeah, but and if you're not doing it, then they're doing it. So it's like either hidden or you're aware of it. Right. You're aware of it. And and not only that, but it's just this awareness of that, how precious every plant is and and what it takes to make anything grow and so that you can take advantage of its fruit. And that was just a real interesting thing. But Okay. So you planted them and then what happened? Well, it took five or six days for them to sprout. And then you just keep raising the light. I had like an upside down cage of a it was like one of those drawers that that have those uh they're just wire a wire drawer turned it upside down put the light on top of it put a, a heating under use use shelves and then i had five or six shelves cuz the key is and this is from my friend Leanne that does this she has a big operation in her basement so i call her up and say okay what's the trick she goes make sure the light is as close to the plant as you can or they'll get too leggy so i made sure the light was and as they grew you had to put um, another shelf underneath it to make them closer to the light and water them every day, just check on them every day. And you mimic the light with the daylight that's outside. So right now here in Minnesota, we're almost at 13 hours of daylight. And so that's when you turn the light on and when you turn the light off to mimic the outside light. 
And then yesterday I went and transplanted the big ones. Uh-huh. And I right now we have 36 viable plants. Wow. Very exciting. Yeah. And the peppers aren't doing as well, but they're slower than tomatoes are usually faster anyway. But we had a, I think it was called big spire uh, tomato and cherry tomato and green pepper. Those are the three species. But, you know, I bring them upstairs and show them to my dad and because he can't walk downstairs and he just looks at it like, wow, if we do that? And I said, well, dad, mostly me, but no. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hearing that you, I'm hearing you're a different gardener today than you were a month ago. That this, like what you've, now that you've done it, I, I suspect that if you do it next year, it'll be like, oh, that. Oh yeah. Well, like anything. Anything. I don't care if you start knitting or any anything that you start. It's always going to be at it. You started back at a different level. I think it's if you love learning like I do, then and you're not afraid of making mistakes, then the process is is engaging and fun. And it's not like, well, this again. You know, we're gonna we're gonna pickle beans again or something. You make me think of when I was uh, starting fermenting and looking over at my potatoes over there, the vinegar over there, the the sauerkraut over there. And the first time I was like, oh, I hope I don't mess it up. I got to get the right amount of salt. I better do it. I better not mess it up. And, I, and now I'm just like, I'm, not, I, I'm in a hurry. I'll just throw some salt on it and it tastes great. And it mm-hmm. doesn't go bad. And I'm like, oh, it wasn't as hard as I thought. And I guess that's why they've been doing it for 10,000 years. <laughs> like it's not, it's not that hard. Don't you feel gypped at times that some of the most engaging and important activities we're kind of stripped away from our lives as either by automation or by sort of the idea that if you had to work the land or you had to do your own stuff, it was somehow the, a lower class activity. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. You made, if you had to make your own coal, look at Goldie, not Goldie Hawn, um, look at Dolly Parton and her song, The Coat of Many Colors. It's about her mother taking scraps of material and making her a coat and how she was teased at school, even though she thought it as a, as a coat of love. You know, it's like, oh, you have something handmade. We have stuff that's store-bought. You know, that whole idea that, that something that came out of a factory was not only better, but if you had to have something that was made by hand, it was considered to be of a lower status in life. And I think that's just a jip because people are looking for meaning in their life. And I look around and they're not doing anything with their hands. They're not engaged. They have nothing to show for their time during the day. Everything is comes out of a factory and, and you wonder why life feels so worthless. You know, so I think it's a big jip to, to get us away from doing things yourself. I mean, I, I've had a yard for 25 years and yesterday I just went out and had my first asparagus that I planted mm. maybe six or seven years ago and went, I said, I, my husband was talking. I said, stop talking and eat this. As first asparagus, you know how good that tastes out of your own yard that you planted? And I, I look down my block and I just go, oh, I just want to share this joy. It's just pure joy of doing things yourself and learning and uh, being more connected to the cycles of life. I mean, I could look out in my yard right now, and if I didn't know the month, I could tell you because the daffodils are blooming that it's April. So tell me specifically about what you're saying is, is in general... And how about in, this, in the tomato example of what you've done, what was the emotional journey of that? Well, it was, it was that... Actually, if you don't mind, go back to when you first committed to it. Yeah. And, you're, you know, and you decided you're going to do it. And then you're going to come and talk about it. 
So starting mm-hmm. from there and then all the different steps in between, even up until now. Mm-hmm. I think it was easier than I thought it would be. And it was, I involved a lot more people. And in the process of doing that, I think you said last time, Josh, that sometimes once you commit to something, it's easier to commit to other things. And that was my experience because at the same time, I said, you know, every time I'm here and I'm cooking, I'm going to take all the compost and bring it to the uh, organized compost site. And then it started that everyone who was cooking for my dad, he's got two caregivers and my sister and I cook for him. And uh, they were saving their compost for me without even me asking. I would get this whole, my car was full of compost and they filled the car with compost from the dinner they made at their homes to bring to my dad. He go, here, you want the compost? I'm like, sure. So I think that the process sort of opened up, what else could I do at his house that would be more, you know, create less waste, create more soil. And that's what I found that doing things in tandem makes, makes it easier. You know, at first, my dad, like, obviously, I keep, you know, what do I need to do that for? And like, you don't need to do anything, dad, but let's try it. And then when that first came up, he was like, are there any tomatoes yet? He's got a great sense of humor. And I said, not yet, dad, you you need a little more. I think that's the other thing it teaches you is patience. Mm -hmm. And if those of us are a little weak and patience, I would admit that I am. It teaches you how to be happy for every little inch of growth. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing happiness, I'm hearing joy, I'm hearing, if you say you do something and then it makes you want to do more, is inspiration, is that one of them? Oh, yeah. And and inspiration and then also creativity because he's got a real shady backyard. So where are you going to put these things? So you start being more creative and saying, you know, where are we going to put these? And so it got me to thinking, looking at the yard and saying, you know, this yard is a mess. So I had to call it landscaping. A place that's going to dethatch and aerate, but we're not going to fertilize because he's right on a pond. And, you know, that's why I met a guy who had a pretty environmental attitude toward the lawn that he has. And so that kind of got that rolling. And then I looked at the gutters and noticed they were leaking and we found somebody that I knew and was going to come and fix those. And, and it, all this stuff about now you have to focus on the outside because these tomato plants have to have a home. So it, it's sort of the in a good way, I don't know if you remember the Dr. Seuss story, The Cat in the Hat, where you try to get rid of the spot and it keeps, keeps going to something else. And, and in a good way, it was like, okay, now I've got to think about where are these plants going to go. I mean, I'm sure I'll take some of them to our yard, but to his, in his home, you know, his yard is, it's a very, very fancy, you know, upscale neighborhood. Not a whole lot of people have tomato plants in their front yard. But last year I did buy plant and put it in his front yard and I would go out and pick the tomatoes and say, here, dad, these are your tomatoes from your yard, but we didn't grow them from seeds. So it was that next level that we achieved this year. So it was inspiring. It was creative. And it, I think it forces you to pay attention to things that are often ignored. It sounds, I hear satisfaction, completion, or like a thoroughness, like a it's like a full cycle thing, full, full circle, okay. full circle. Like a, if you're involved, like if you're going to make a tomato sauce and you're going to do it from a jar and you're going to add things to it, that's one level. And then if you're going to the next level and you're going to make your own sauce, that's the next level. But if you're going to then make it from tomatoes that you grew, it's the next level, but then you're going to do it from the tomatoes you grew from seed. It's that whole, mm-hmm. you know, engagement with a part of life that we've known for so long and we've erased it from our 
modern day experience for the most part. And and that's what I meant by being gypped, because my grandmother, who I was very close to, she had to, went through the depression, everything. She she grew her own, She they lived in um, Omaha, Nebraska, and grew her own apricots, her own grapes. She made her own jelly. She made her own jam. She pickled everything. And and it was like, they had to. There, there weren't, if you wanted to eat, you had to learn how to do all that. And I, I just remember her yard being a jungle of grapevines and apricot trees, and then made the mistake of going back to visiting her home many years later. And it was this postage stamp lot. And I couldn't believe that all that food had come out of that little space. But again, another lesson of what we could do if we really put our minds to it. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. All right, we've been talking about the emotional journey, and you talked about your neighbors bring you stuff and your, your father. And what about the relationship side of things? How did, how did this affect relationships if it, if it did? And if so, how? Well, I think that everyone associated with my dad's inner support circle was very not only supportive, but they were the ones who had to turn the lights on and off because I wasn't going to be there in the morning or in the night. And I, I gave him a choice and said, either you do turn the light on at night and turn it off in the morning or turn it on in the morning and turn it off at night. Doesn't matter. It just has to be 12 hours or 13 hours, whatever the mimics of daylight. And so I got, they had to be involved and they liked being involved. And I would text them and say, did you turn on the lights? Yep, already done. So I never really had to do too much encouraging because they're already saying, oh, where are we going to plant them? So I think that, that it was a shared enthusiasm. I didn't have to carry the weight of that this was a good idea. It really had its own force. I think it was very, it continues to be a lesson to me in that sometimes ideas just need to be started rather than thought all the way through. Yes. Oh man, that totally resonated with, with me. Just start it and, and don't worry what, how it's going to come out. Just see I have a friend who's going to do an Earth Day cleanup by this. They're trying so hard to get these stormwaters not to bring all this crap into the, this one lake that's nearby. And what they did is they just started doing art projects with, uh, with the trash that they collected. And it, that made the news and now the neighborhood's involved. And it just, I think a good idea like that sort of takes on a life of its own. And that's what I, that's what I've found that now they're reminding me how are the plants doing? You know, and uh, what can I do to help? And so everybody's involved in either watering or if I can't get over there, you know, make sure the lights go on. And and uh, one of my dad's caregivers um, was actually a native of Brazil. He said, "Can I help you?" And I said, "Of course." My dad's also a stained glass maker, and once he's in a project like that, he just can't be bothered. So he was doing his stained glass. So he came outside, and we we're we we're transferring plants on Sunday, and it was really. Now a, now a dual effort rather than just, just my crazy idea. It reminds me of a friend of mine, and he spent some time in Italy and when, a couple of years. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't know exactly what he saw there, but he saw that they would make wine in the fall. And so he came back and he bought some wine making equipment and he bought some grapes and he'd make wine. And then the next year, a little bit more and the next year, a little bit more. And after a couple of years, he's out in New Jersey where there's a little more space than here in Manhattan. And they would have giant trucks of grapes delivered and they had, they had a whole, some serious stuff to make the, the wine. And, but when they're doing it, it's like kids running. It's everyone, everyone brings some food over. The kids come over. The kids are like smashing the grapes. Everyone's doing their little thing. And we're talking about how wine happens. And it's so wholesome and so community. And yeah, you can just go to the store and buy some wine too. But what have you actually saved? If, if what you've, okay, so now you're not spending time with the family. Like it, and I wouldn't have thought to do it except that he did it. And he's like, that, these ways are great, great things to do. And that made a big impression on me. Like I, that's why I had people over for dinner so much. Well, you know, it's the sharing and the, and the, I think the, there's something in our culture that I've always been fighting against, which is it's a knowledge that there's no fun in, in the process, but just the result. You know, you know what I mean? Like the process of, of trying to be really, really paying attention. I mean, I mean, as I'm looking right now, I wish I could show you this. There's a adult fox coming through my yard. It's very exciting. And I don't know where she put her young. They, they put her, they, she keeps her young underneath my shed. But I, you know, I just was, I'm just looking out my window and going, okay, how are the raspberries doing? And here comes a fox. I mean, the surprises that you can't predict are there all the time. Instead of saying, where's the raspberries? I want I want the raspberries. We we just so goal oriented yeah. rather than process oriented, and and I think that's what this this experiment with the with the tomatoes has has reminded me once again that the process is really important. That's life is living, and you said these things take a life of their own. Is there is there have you started looking ahead to what's next? Or I mean, I guess soon there's going to be some eating involved, but uh, has it, does this have a life of its own? If so, what's its life? Well, I, I'm thinking that its life might be giving away plants to neighbors and saying, do you have a spot for tomatoes? I know that across the street, they have square box gardening in their front yard. And I'm sure they'll, there'll be a great customer for some free tomato plants and then go, go from there. But to, to start giving them away. It's a total switch. It, it went from, I didn't want to get plants that were pre-made by someone else to now you are delivering pre-made plants to others. Except without the plastic, I presume. Homemade plants, not pre-made. <laughs> Homemade, yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that would be fun to to give some away and to plant some, and then and then be able to then take the produce of them and 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 then share the produce too. So you can there's two ways of sharing is a because I think that's the most fun is to make people you know if you can't if you haven't tasted fresh tomato grown in a Minnesota summer. Oh my, that's the best. It's just so sweet. You're upending everything because it's supposed to be that if you put in labor, then you should sell the stuff and you should get value for it. And otherwise, why would you work? And instead, because you did it, you want to share it. Economists think you're, you're inhuman. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I'll take that criticism any day of the week. Any day of the week. I won't quote what people say about economists. Hopefully we have some listening and we don't want to turn them off. But the economy is a subset of the earth and we can't, we can't pretend otherwise. Mm-hmm. Is there anything I didn't think to ask to share about the tomatoes or anything else, if they touched on anything else? I, I think that 
it just occurred to me in the last couple of days that it's a reminder of paying attention to the seasons and how we, I'll give you an example. When it rains, you can almost tell the gardener from the non-gardener because when it rains, the person who loves the outdoors and wants to bike and do whatever they do outside, when it rains, they're upset. And when it rains, a gardener is thrilled. And and they because we understand the value of rain and, and what that means to the plants and what it means to the food and what it means to the soil and what it means to the groundwater. And, and if you're not connected to the land by not growing, then then rain is just a big inconvenience because you didn't get to go biking or hiking or you have your picnic or outdoor party or whatever it is you're going to do. And I just think about how lucky I am to be able to be connected to the cycles. When I, when I see that the, the lilacs are about the size of squirrels' ears, I know it's time to go looking for morels, the wild mm. mushrooms in the woods. And I, I, you can't go looking for morels in July because you want to. You have to pay attention to the cycles of life. And I think that that's so important, you know, to know nature well enough to know that when the dandelions are up, what that means for the bees and what that means. Like right now, I was I was upset with myself. It's very cold here today. And I should have gone out and gotten my plantain and my dandelions and put it in a smoothie because that's free food. I would say it's free food. You got to learn it. And I've never put any naughty things on my lawn. So it's, it's, it's free, tasty, good, healthy stuff too. And I chastise myself for sometimes just going, well, I don't have any spinach in the freezer. How can I make a smoothie or or fresh stuff? It's like, it's growing for free out there, Karen. Stop Mm -hmm. it. Stop it. So it's, 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 I think, I think it's just the reminder. If we don't do these actions that I know you're engaged with as well, then it's really easy to forget the magic of the seasons. Yeah, it's, I don't want to, oh, should I get into it? There's a passage in my book that I, I'm talking about. What if we had fusion? And if we had fusion, then, you know, you can build anything anywhere because you can desalinate water and depollute everything. And, and I can't imagine us not growing buildings everywhere. Like New York, the exurbs would start moving ever more west. And they'd keep growing west until I think they hit Chicago going east or San Francisco going east. Because why not? The power is too cheap to meter. And it's and maybe that's a better life. Everybody living indoors all the time. Possible. I can't say. But like Central Park would go away because you're going to have mile high buildings. And there's going to be no sunlight reaching Central Park. I mean, you could put some LEDs to power it. And that, that's not Central. That's, that's effectively indoors now. So, I mean, you could have parks indoors. Or you can just have parks outdoors in the first place. Well, you have to remember that the groundwater needs to be unpaved land so that it can absorb the rain. And if you pave everything over, you're not going to have water eventually. So it's not sustainable just from that one perspective. Well, you you desalinate the seawater. I mean, if you had fusion. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, and, and then you ship it because you have. Yeah, well, you know, Bill Ryerson, we've talked about him before, said the worst thing that could ever happen to humans would be a free source of green energy. Yeah, he said that. I, I think I thought he quoted someone else. I heard that from him too. Yeah, I think. yeah, and I agree with him. I'm not sure he's the original source of that, but I've said it as well that we don't want to just switch on our lights and have them come from some you know, source that's decarbonized because that won't, you know, that will just keep the, keep the 
you know, the growth going. It would augment the values. Right. Without, yeah. Right, exactly. It would augment them. Exactly. And, and, and we just have so much loss when we keep going for, reaching for convenience rather than work. And I don't mean tedious work, but I mean work that we're talking about with growing your own tomatoes or making your own vinegar, or making your own kombucha, whatever. There's so much loss of, of integrity and purpose in life, which I think that works sort of hardwired to, to have. I'm inclined to finish right there because I did ask if there's anything else to add. Is That's it. Anything else to add after that? That's we leave on integrity. We leave on integrity. I Thank you so much for the, the whole challenge, Josh. I really appreciate it. Well, Karen Schreck, thank you very much. I, my only regret is I don't get to eat one of these tomatoes. I, ah, but I hope, yes. And if I ship it to you, that's another problem. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> it, that would mess it all up. It, it would mess it all up. It would mess it all up. The best thing I can do is to, is to get to know, well, I have some cherry tomatoes growing in my windowsill. Do you? Great. I don't think they're going to taste as good as yours. They will to me. They will. But not to, uh, not to everyone else. That's right. All right. But my summer CSA farm, we go, hopefully we'll get to go this year. We, last year we didn't get to go, but going up to that farm and meeting the farmers and eating their cherry tomatoes, it's just, I mean, I don't eat for a day before going up there just so I can make sure I can eat more. Oh, it's, it's the best. I mean, you, you have to, it's also a part of slowing down so you can appreciate it. You know, yeah. it's the opposite of fast food, isn't it? It's slow food, yep. very slow. Like the slow food movement of Italy, it's it's slow, yeah. and and we could use a lot more slow. It would it would it would get us because nature's process is slow, and when when our process is fast, and we don't mesh in with nature's process, then it all goes haywire. You know the the idea that that I want it now. And I want it ripe and I want it good. Well, what does that do? That means that you're eating chili from, you know, grapes from, from chili and you're, everything is, is flown in. And, you know, you're now is, is our favorite word in this culture, it seems like. Yeah. Well, Karen, thank you very much. Thank you very much. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.